Well, good morning. It is so good to be with you all. It is so good to just hear of all that is happening around Sojourners. I hope you don't miss it, but <clears throat> when we say we, we celebrate life together, it's really we are celebrating life together from beginning to end and beyond eternal life ultimately. And I'm just so thankful to the Lord for all that he's doing among us, and I'm thankful to the Lord for how we all serve each other. Um, and I just want to impress upon you, whether it's giving a meal or praying or having a conversation or encouraging or whatever we do with one another, these are substantial things. Sometimes people think serving, you need to play the piano or you need to be a preacher or you need to have something up front. And while those things are valuable, the one another's are the lifeblood and the spinal cord of the entire church. And if you don't have the one another's, well, you don't have a church because that's what a church is. It's one another. And so my encouragement to you all is to be encouraged that everything that you might think might be small is actually great for the Lord. And I'm so thankful to the Lord for that. And there are so many opportunities and so many ways that from a human standpoint, you might feel like you're serving behind the scenes, but from God's standpoint, you are serving the King of Kings. And so just know that, and it just gives me such great joy to see you all honoring and worshiping Christ in our love for one another. Well, this week, I had a lot of meetings, and walking out of one of the meetings, I had a meeting between meetings, which is kind of my life, as you just walk from one station to another, you have a meeting between walking the station to station, and that meeting was with the department chair of the Bible department, and actually one of our sojourners, Dr. Fraser, was chatting with him, and he said to me, Abner, I heard you're planning to finish Daniel chapter 2. And I said, well, this is an interesting meeting. And I said, well, Lord willing. He goes, you're not going to do that. (laughs) And I said, where did this come from? He said, I just heard that you preached only four or five verses. I said, well, that's true. And he says, so what, what makes you think that you can, if you have to only preach four to five verses, because that's all you can handle, that all of a sudden you can preach 13? And I said, um, he goes, you're not going to finish. Just quit now when you're ahead. And I said, I don't know. We're going to find out. Well, it was also pointed out to me that at the rate that I'm going, this could take a long time, and and that might be bad for you and for me. So uh, we will do our very best to actually try to hit all of Daniel 2 this morning. It is a little bit crazy, I will suggest to you. I have in big letters in my notes, PUSH. So we're, we're just going to really, really go for it. And the Lord is good, and, and this is just an amazing text. And I don't want us to lose, as we are getting a little bit more detailed into the passage at times, that we don't want to lose the forest for the trees. We, we don't want to forget all that's been happening and all that is going on in this book of Daniel. And this book of Daniel is, fundamentally, a declaration, every verse, every chapter, of the supremacy of God. 
That even though Daniel and his friends have been exiled, even though it may have appeared that Babylon invaded Israel, that is not the case. It is not the case that God has lost. It is not the case that he has been defeated. Rather, he is resilient and undefeatable. And every chapter of Daniel testifies to that immediately and sets up for it ultimately, leading into Daniel 7, where you learn in the end, there is only one king. There is only one king of kings and lord of lords, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of man, the final Adam. He is the one who will rule over all creation. That is God's end game, and that is where things are going. You can't stop it. In every chapter where Nebuchadnezzar or others are defeated and subjugated, it is a demonstration of that ultimate reality. And so Daniel has progressed, and we progressed into two chapters, granted, but the first chapter has demonstrated God's supremacy in that you have the uncompromising life of Daniel. <clears throat> There's a great irony in this, that Nebuchadnezzar wanted Daniel to compromise, and in the end, Daniel forces Babylon to compromise. Babylon is the one that has to back down on the regimen that they prescribed to Daniel and his friends. And so God is sovereign, and he is undefeatable. And in Daniel chapter 2, God demonstrates his glory in his superior wisdom, That Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, who thought they knew everything, well, they just don't know. They don't even know one dream. And therefore, God empowers Daniel to demonstrate that God has wisdom. (coughs) And then God actually grants the revelation of that dream, which itself is a message. Nebuchadnezzar might not have known what that dream was talking about. We understand that. However, for those of the people of God who knew their Bibles, they would have gotten the message that all of those imageries, all of that symbolism found in that dream is not just symbolic of what will happen, amen and amen, but it is a reminder that all of those things go back to the promises of God. God did promise something and has prescribed and described the realities about man, God's image. He has prescribed realities about the stone who is the Messiah. He has prescribed realities about the person of the Messiah, that he is God and therefore this stone is not made with human hands. He has prescribed realities about the wicked, that they are like chaff blown by the wind, exactly what the dream demonstrates. And he has prescribed realities about Jerusalem, which is a mountain, not just any mountain, but a great mountain. And he has prescribed realities about his whole purpose for the world, which is that it is to be filled with his glory. Hence, the final language of his dream is that it is filling, that is his glory fills the whole earth. This is a reminder. This is a demonstration. Even in the picture that God put in Nebuchadnezzar's head that God is the one who is sovereign and he has forgotten none of his promises. Sometimes we think in our trials that the truths of scripture have gone into temporary animation suspended animation that for some reason well they just don't operate right now i just i because i can't see them they must not be true right now they must not be functioning right now and god in his kind providence and this is the goodness of god to his people sent a message ironically through nebuchadnezzar to tell all of the people of god scattered all across the empire of babylon my truths are still true 
I have not forgotten any of my promises. They are still yes and amen. You cannot think that I've neglected anything that I've said in Psalm 1 or Isaiah 6 or Numbers 14 or Ezekiel or whatever book it may be. I have remembered all of those promises. They are yes and amen. And we need to remind ourselves of that. That the Son is like God's glory and the sun that is that shines is like God's goodness. The sun always shines. The sun always shines. Sometimes you can't see it because the clouds get in the way, but it's still shining. And in the same way, God's glory and God's goodnesses and God's promises are always in operation, whether the clouds of trial block it or not. It is always there. And we must pray to the Lord in trial and in difficulty, especially when our eyes cannot see that God gives us true sight. Sight that allows us to walk by faith and not by physical sight. That is what we need to understand. And so, having done all of this and demonstrated his glory in so many different ways, finally, as we said last week, demonstrating his glory that he has not forgotten any of his promises, not one good word of the Lord has failed. Now we reach chapter 2, verse 36. This was the dream. Now we will say its interpretation before the king. And now we're going to learn not just what the dream depicted, not just the imagery of the dream, which is a message in and of itself, but what the dream referred to, what it actually talks about, the plan of God. Now, before jumping in this, there are three things to discuss. Three things to discuss. It's like a sermon before the sermon, which is why Dr. Halstead, my boss, was laughing at me, saying, you're never going to finish. So, Here are the three things that we need to understand, and here's the first one. As we get into this text, it is inevitable. Let me say that again. It is inevitable that you cannot avoid the subject of eschatology and the views of eschatology. This is is the foundational moment. This is an intentional discussion of those things. So I just want to remind us very quickly of the different views and how we need to evaluate these views. When we talk about things like premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism, they are all views that are based upon when does Christ come in relation to his kingdom? When does Christ come in relation to his kingdom? And if you are premillennial, what you believe then is that Christ comes premillennial, before his millennial kingdom, that Christ will come at his second coming and establish that millennial kingdom, a thousand-year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ on this earth. That is the nature of pre-millennialism. Amillennialism, a second view, believes that, well, we don't exactly have a physical kingdom as such. Rather, it is Christ reigning currently in the church age from heaven and in hearts And his reign as he restrains Satan, as he allows for the gospel to be preached, that is what the Bible really intends when it talks about the kingdom. And that will be followed by his coming and the eternal state. And so that's what we call amillennialism, that Christ is reigning in a spiritual and supernatural way right now in the church, in people's hearts, and through the gospel. That's a second view. A third view is what we call post 
millennialism. In contrast with premillennialism and amillennialism, postmillennialism says, well, actually, we as the church are obligated as we fill the earth and are fruitful and multiply and capture all things of the Lord Jesus Christ, we establish Christ's dominance through the preaching of the gospel on this earth. And after we do so, post-millennialism, Christ returns and therefore ushers in the eternal state following that. So you have premillennialism, Christ comes before. Amillennialism, Christ is doing it in some way now. Postmillennialism, Christ does, Christ returns afterwards. Of course, there are two other views. One view, panmillennialism, says, I have no idea what's going to happen. I'm just going to let it pan out. And there is a final view, a people who believe that the definition of the kingdom is their happy life, and that it's not just Christ who sets that up for them, but everyone on the planet should set it up for them, and we call those millennials. (laughs) In all seriousness, there are truly only three views. A fourth view that might have some humility, and a fifth view that that could actually be sinful. So, (laughs) but I think and I hope that you understand these views, and they need to be percolating in our mind as we come through this text. But at this point, we have to enter the second preparatory point before we get into the message, where you have talked about the eschatological views. But second, you might say, why does this even matter? Why bother even thinking through these things and contemplating these things? And why does the Bible have to have this thing called eschatology? And why are we having all these debates? Why can't we just get along? Now, let's be clear. Everyone can really get along as believers. That's not the question. The question is just iron sharpening iron so that we learn the Bible together. But there is a fundamental truth here, and this is what I want to get at in the second point, which is the connection between history and theology. History and theology. What we must understand about the nature of the Word of God and God's revelation is that God did not, He did not do things like all other religions which tie their ideologies with nothing. With nothing. With nothing that is tied with reality with nothing that can be verified, with nothing that is inherently physical, tangible, historical, or factual. If you think about Islam, the basis for it is what? A dream. Can you verify the dream? No. Do you, can you really tell Muhammad, oh, you did or did not have a dream on such and such a date? There's no way we could figure that out. There's no way we could know. Its theology is tied with something not tethered to reality. Hinduism is similar. Buddhism is similar. It is tied in mystery. It is tied in realities not on the tangible, physical, three-dimensional plane. It is not tied with time and space. But what do you have in Scripture from beginning to end? You have history. You have a claim of God that says the reason that these theological truths are actually facts on the ground is because they are tied with facts on the ground. We do not just have the idea of the resurrection. 
It's a really good concept. No, what do we believe as even the time of the season is coming upon us? We believe Jesus rose from the dead. We do not just say, well, God demonstrated his love for us because in this parable, Jesus died for us. And it, but it's a fictional thing. He really didn't die for us. Well, then if, if he didn't really die for us, then did God really demonstrate his love? No, what do we say? Because we know, as a fact, Christ died for us. He was on the tree. He did bear God's wrath. He did do these things, actually. That's why we know that God loves us. It is, history is always tied with theology. How do we know that God is wrathful? Because he did destroy the whole world. And if he didn't do that in the flood, then we got a problem. You cannot just say in the Bible's logic, well, even if such and such event doesn't happen, we still have the theology of it. Take away the history, you take away the theology. Take away the reality, then you take away the theology. That is exactly the logic of Scripture over and over and over and over and over again. Let me be clear. We do not serve a God, and the truths of the Scripture, they are not just academic ivory tower ideas and you can take them or leave them. They are not just theory. They are not hypothetical. They are the facts on the ground. Sometimes in counseling situations, and as I discuss them with some people, I often say, well, you know, optimally, this is what should have happened, and then I wouldn't have this counseling situation. And then people remind me, Abner, but that didn't happen. The reason you have this counseling situation is because they didn't do what the Bible said originally. So stop thinking about what they could have done in a time machine, and you have to address what is happening right in front of you right now. This is what we call the facts on the ground. And what the Bible has is facts on the ground. It is history. You have to deal with it. It is irrefutable. Because everything has been set in motion, and it's not set in motion abstractly, it is set in motion even physically. The physical formation of this world and the events of this world, they have set things in motion. They have moved things and advanced God's plan forward. You cannot refute it. As real as the earth is, as real as the ground is, as real as the sky is, as real as every single event that you know to be true, that's the reality of every truth of God's word. That is the tie between history and theology. We see it in the resurrection. We see it in God's love. We see it in God's wrath. We see it in creation. We see it in every single doctrine. That's why the Bible does what it does. And so as we talk about the issues of the future, as we talk about the plan of God here, and we wonder, why do we have to tie it with history? Why do we have to do all these things? On one hand, on one hand, yes, is there theology in it? If all we said from these texts is this is what's going to happen, then this is what's going to happen, then this is what's going to happen, then this is what's going to happen, we do the text a service because no one just divorces theology from history in the Bible. When we teach about the crucifixion, we don't just say, well, the cross was made out of wood and this was the composition of wood and it was this tall and it was, had these kind of nails and they're made out of this metal, and Jesus lasted this long on the cross, and then that's it. It's a good Friday. What? That's not how you teach the crucifixion. And if you do, you're doing it wrong. 
We don't just say, and Jesus rose from the dead. It's a fact. It's Resurrection Sunday. What? You don't talk about the hope of the resurrection? You don't talk about the theology of it? Whoa, 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 what's going on? We know that as we narrate events, the Bible has a reason for why they say what they say. And so we need to have the theology, but at the same time, you can't have the theology without the history. Whether that be past, present, or history that we haven't even talked about and seen yet, because it's in the future. You need to have both. And as we talk about God's plan, both need to be there. And when you have both, you start to realize that the theology we want to talk about, amen and amen, at that moment, because it's tied with history one way or another, it's that real. It's that true. And here's the irony, and happens to college students particularly that I interact with, but it happens really to anybody. People, people confuse so easily what is virtual with what is real. What is meaningful and true versus what is fictional and fleeting. We think, oh, this is what is going to be really valuable. This is what's really going to be neat. And we forget what's actually more real is what the Bible says. Because this is the facts on the ground. This is what you have to deal with. The other stuff in your life that is outside of the scriptures that will come and go. It will burn. It'll disappear. This is what you have to deal with. And it's a fact. The other stuff isn't even a fact. If you stop and think about it, a lot of things we do is on the internet. There are no facts with the internet. It's virtual. It's driven by electricity. You unplug it, it's over. That's not a fact on the ground. This is facts on the ground. The very physicality of the earth is shaped by this book. This is irrefutable. You have to deal with it. And that's what we need to remember all the time. History is tied with theology. And so why discuss eschatological views? Point one, point two, preparatory, because history is tied with theology. You can never forget that. And third, and third, what you need to understand about this passage in Daniel, and this is so amazing. It, it, again, is just the goodness of God, really is his mercy, is that this plan, this framework that we're about to have, is the framework, the key framework for all history. It's everything. It's, it's how you organize all your thoughts It's that formidable. It's that significant. Look above in your text to chapter 2, verse 30. Notice, and even verse 29, notice what Daniel describes this dream as. He says, As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would happen in the future. So important. Nebuchadnezzar is not disturbed by what's happening now. He wants to understand the future. He understands how important this is. And notice, here is what Daniel describes about God. He, that is God, who reveals mysteries, has made known to you what will happen. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me by any wisdom. 
what Daniel discusses and is about to discuss and what we are about to learn is truly what the Bible calls the mystery. The mystery. The mystery, you can hear that language echo into the New Testament in Ephesians. Paul says, I had insight into the mystery. Why are mysteries called mysteries? On the one hand, mysteries are called mysteries because they are things that are not revealed. They are things intentionally kept hidden. They are things intentionally kept secret. And there's a reason why you keep things secret. And it's not just always for the nefarious purposes that you just don't want to let people know and you want to flaunt it over them. Maybe that's true. But often there are things that are kept secret because they're so good and so important. You want to reveal them in a big way. Corporations have rules about secrecy, especially on their new launches of products. Why? Because they don't want the information to leak out so that they can have a big, big launch day. Marketing people love this kind of stuff. There's a reason why God kept it a mystery. It's because it hasn't been revealed yet until now in Daniel 2. And what that accentuates is not only that it has been concealed, but this is actually the climax. That's what it really points to. Whatever is called mystery in the scripture is the critical climactic information that starts to resolve everything. It is one of the key things that God does that actually brings resolution to all kinds of things in his plan. And here we have one mystery. And by the way, do you not recall in Ephesians that he calls the church a what? A mystery. So now you know how special the church is in God's mind and in God's agenda. This is one of the key factors that resolves redemptive history. Church is a big deal. It's a mystery. It's one of the key realities of solving and resolving and driving and fitting together the entire eternal agenda of God. In the same token, in the same way, what we have here, what we're about to learn is the mystery. This is really special. Now, while it is special, that's one S word, I guess you could say, it's also simple. You're like, eschatology is not simple. Okay, well, there's a reason why Daniel 2 is Daniel 2, as opposed to Daniel 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. And there's a reason why there's also a Daniel 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and a book of Revelation, and a Zechariah, and all these other books that deal with eschatology. It's because God's a good teacher. God's a good teacher. Generally, in education. Now, you can confront me later why I'm not correct and everything, and that's fine. But generally in education, you start with simple things. First day of kindergarten, you don't just say to everybody, let's do some calculus. (laughs) I don't even know how to spell calculus. It doesn't matter. (laughs) Repeat after me, you know? I mean, like, that's not what we do. You don't do first day of class. Let's analyze French literature and philosophy. I don't even know English. Doesn't matter. Let's just do it. Let's go high. PhD, day one. There's a reason. In education, you start simple. You start with the basics. And then you build from there. 
hope that's the that's the idea at least anyways in theory and so that by the time you do learn calculus you do know what a number is that's handy <laughs> and you do know there's this thing called plus and and minus and multiplication and division and you might even learn about variables and all this kind of stuff you learn that and it's accrued knowledge over time <coughs> daniel 2 is at the beginning because Daniel's saying to us, and God, is, as a great teacher, is saying, okay, we're about to have eschatology 101. This is the most basic it's going to get. And you might say, it's hard. No, it's actually not that bad. It's pretty good. It's pretty easy. And we can build from here. So we don't have to figure everything out here. We just need to get the framework here. But basics is helpful. Because when you start to evaluate views and the like, Basic is useful. How do you evaluate a car? Sometimes you just got to start with the basics. Should I buy this car? Does it run? <laughs> you know, people are like, whoa, it's red. It's got air conditioning. It's got GPS. And it's like, it has no engine. <laughs> then the answer is no, unless you're just collecting things. You know, does it have wheels? This is a very good question. Does it have a key so you can turn it on? These are basic questions, yeah? Like me and desserts. I have a sweet tooth. Do you want dessert? Will this work? Does it have sugar? <laughs> yes. Does it have a lot of sugar? No. No. <laughs> we need the basics sometimes. And therefore, Daniel is saying, this is the basics. This is the mystery this is God's goodness. He didn't have to tell you how he was going to do everything to give you a plan for your life. He didn't have to do that, but he did. So as you're thinking through the theology and as you're thinking through theological views and as you're thinking and learning and everything, this is the basics. So let's learn the basics together. And that begins, and you could just think of it this way. It's the plan of God for the nations and the plan of God for his son. Isn't that simple enough? The plan of God for the nations and the plan of God for his son. Two major points here and an epilogue at the end. Let's start with the plan of God for the nations. And this is in verses 36 through 43. 36 through 43 of chapter 2. And I'd be remiss. I would be remiss if we just skipped over verse 36 too much. I know we have to push, and I know my introduction's been long, but all of this has to happen, and we can't miss this. Here's what Daniel says. This was the dream. Now we will say its interpretation before the king. Did you catch that? He didn't just say, now I'm going to say the interpretation before the king. He could have, because that would be a true statement, because he's the only one talking right now. But he didn't. He said, we. People ask, who is the we? Well, it could be Daniel and his friends, and, and Daniel is including his friends in there in his humility, and that would be true. But really, who has Daniel been focusing upon? I'm not the one who's giving you the revelation. I'm not the one who can figure this out. Who is the one who's been giving the revelation? Who is the one who knows it all? God. I'm just speaking on behalf of God. We. And immediately you realize something about eschatology. Immediately, you re recognize something about the nature of character. Immediately, you recognize the nature of humility. 
it's never I do anything. It's we. You always, we always point back to God. Whether we're discussing the end times, whether we're presenting things before bosses and kings, whether we are giving credit to anybody, it's never I. It's always we. Daniel's life is so remarkable because it's remarkably consistent that he always thinks of himself as lowly and he always thinks of his God as first. And even in a pronoun, he will make sure God gets the credit. That says something about our speech, does it not? It's amazing. It's amazing. It's instructive. Okay. So, what we have here, by way of review and by way of structuring, verses 37 through 43, is we have four kingdoms. Count them, four. So when we talk about the plan of the nations, we have four kingdoms, symbolized by four metals, linked with four different parts of an image, a statue. And Daniel announces the first of those four kingdoms, the first of those four medals, the first of those four parts of the statue. And he says, you, Nebuchadnezzar, O king, are the king of kings. So we know that first part of the statue, that first kingdom, God's plan for the nations for this point forward, the first of those four nations is Babylon, ruled by King Nebuchadnezzar. But here, that's the history side of it, but here is, here is the theology side of it. Notice what Daniel says, and it's astounding words. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of kings. The king of kings. That should give you some pause because we know who the real king of kings is. Who is that? The Lord Jesus Christ. How can Daniel and God revealing through Daniel say to Nebuchadnezzar, you are the king of kings, the one who is Lord over all kings, the one who has ultimate power. That is astounding because he's speaking to Nebuchadnezzar to what Nebuchadnezzar thinks. Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's what? the king of kings, because he does have power. He is a global ruler. He's a mighty superpower. He is the one in one year that transformed everything around. And so in his mind, he is the king of kings. But what does Daniel immediately say right after that? Same breath, same sentence, to whom the God of heaven has given. Nebuchadnezzar, you thought you were so high. Nebuchadnezzar, you thought you were like the Messiah. Nebuchadnezzar, you thought you had the height, the pinnacle, the peak of power. That was given to you by someone who has more power. You're of earth. You have a God who's what? In heaven. And what we need to remember, and here's kind of the lesson of Babylon. Here's what God illustrates through the nation of Babylon, is that God's authority is always higher than even the height of of man's authority. Let me say that again. That God's authority is higher than even the height of man's authority. We can look at people, and especially when you have someone like Nebuchadnezzar, someone who has so much power. Even in the United States, we have checks and balances, and across the world there are checks and balances and such, and there's restraint. But what happens when power is centralized into one individual, one despot, one tyrant? It can be so intimidating, and what we have to remember, even at that moment, is there still is a God in heaven. Their power is all on earth. There is a God in heaven. 
He has, that is, God has, far more power. And that should amplify the kind of transcendent, high, lofty, exalted might that God has. God in heaven, he has given. And what has he given to Nebuchadnezzar? He gave him the kingdom, that's the place where you rule. The power, that's the power that you personally have. The strength, that's the strength to rule over the place that he gave you to rule. And the glory, the glory is all the honor that people give back to Nebuchadnezzar in light of who he is and what he did. And so God gave him the place, God gave him the output, and then God gave him the positive feedback. God gave him the whole cycle of how he rules. Every single aspect of Nebuchadnezzar's reign and all that he enjoys is given by God. Here's what we need to understand. Even with a tyrant, even with a despot, even with a guy who has all the power, there is not one thing that he has that isn't from God. Not one thing. There is no self-made man. There is no self-made ruler. You might say, why did they all vote for this guy? Because God, God ordained that. He did not get one vote that God did not ordain. He did not get one piece of glory God did not allow. And so we don't get frustrated because nothing is outside of God's control. You say they tampered, they, they did this, they, they, they did manipulations, they did crimes. Sure, fine. But God was over it all. Every, every last second of it, every aspect of it, we don't get upset because our God rules. He has never been defeated. Everything they have, Every single thing they have is of God. Now, he had the height of power. That's Nebuchadnezzar. At least that's what it looks like. Verse 38 echoes this in a different way. After all, we know that the Messiah is going to be the final Adam. He's going to rule over entire creation. And look at what verse 38 says. Wherever the sons of men inhabit, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky. This is like Adam reigning over all creation. That's the kind of power it seemed like Nebuchadnezzar had. But what does the next phrase say? He, that is God, has given them into your hand and has made you rule with power over them all. He's given them into your hand. That's setting up Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. Anytime a tyrant, anytime a king, anytime a ruler begins, it's because God raised him up. He gave something into his hand. He owns it all. He directs it all. And God also successfully executes the direction that he has set. And he not only allowed Nebuchadnezzar to begin, notice the next phrase, and this is why it matters, and has made you rule with power over them all. You can begin, but not finish. You can start, but it never takes off. But Nebuchadnezzar is allowed not only to begin a rule, but to actually continue that rule in power. Why? Because God supplied it to him. Nebuchadnezzar's rule is completely dependent upon God. Every part of it, for its duration, he only lasts for as long as God wants him to last. He's always, Nebuchadnezzar, you could say it this way, just like with any ruler, is on borrowed authority and borrowed time. He's on borrowed authority and borrowed time. You never got there by yourself. You never stay there by yourself. 
You never sustain yourself. You're on borrowed authority and borrowed time. And that's a very bold statement. On one hand, it's flattering. Yes, you're a king of kings. You rule like Adam. It's just not you. It's a backhanded com- it's a backhanded compliment. I love it. And it just illustrates this. It just illustrates this so clearly. What is the final phrase of verse 38? You are the head of gold. That's that's Nebuchadnezzar. He's the only he's the most valuable metal in his mind. He's the most valuable uh, currency. He's gold. He's the one who's totally unified. And his kingdom is unlike any other kingdom that we'll talk about because it really tried to unify and homogenize and galvanize everything together. That's true. He's unique. And not only that, it is the guy's dream. So who else is he going to dream about but himself? So this guy loves himself. And so, of course... God just grants the desire of his wicked heart. You're the head of gold. You're so high up there. And it just completely corresponds. Again, the symbolism, the prophecy and its prediction, it just matches. We know the first key. It's it's Nebuchadnezzar. We know the first kingdom. It's the kingdom of Babylon. And we know also, and this is important, the lesson. Yes, Babylon is an illustration, and God will use them as an illustration of a simple truth. Man may have tons of power, the height of power. God still has more. God still has more. And we need to remember that. We need to remember that. We need to remember that so we're not intimidated by man. But we need to remember that so we don't bring God down. As if God is just a little bit better than the president of the United States. That's not true at all. God is God and man is nothing. And that's the contrast between the two. And that is what God demonstrates here. And he demonstrates it and proves it by virtue of the next kingdom. Notice verse 39. There's after you. I love that phrase, after you. Already you know. How do you know that Nebuchadnezzar is on borrowed authority and borrowed time? Because there's going to be somebody after him. It, you, you don't last forever. There will arise. I love that. Because what does that mean? When something rises up, even the statue is rising up taller than Nebuchadnezzar early. But if something rises up, that means it goes higher than you are. What is this a lesson to Nebuchadnezzar? You thought you were the king of kings. You thought you were the height. You thought you were the second Adam. You thought you were the final ruler of the universe. Well, let me tell you something, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, There's somebody higher than you. There's somebody better than you. And we know that that will be another kingdom. And that moves from the head of gold to the arms and shoulders of silver. And this is very important. Again, this is the precision of prophecy. Every single detail matters. It is significant that it's the arms that are listed in the image of the statue. Why? Because we're talking about the country of Medo-Persia. Did you catch that this country has two parts? It has one part media and the other part Persia. That's why they call it Medo-Persia. It's two things. Just like you have how many arms? Two. How many shoulders? Two. It's not an accident. The Bible is absolutely precise with its imagery to depict history. And by the way, don't forget this. At this time when Daniel's giving this prophecy, Medo-Persia is not an entity on the radar. No one really cares about Medo-Persia. In fact, you don't even have Medo-Persia. And media and 
Persia. Persia is an afterthought. No one is even thinking about Persia. People are watching media and they're just thinking, yeah, I don't know. I don't really think that they're a big deal right now. And here he's predicting something that they get together, which is out of people's mind, and that they're stronger than Babylon, which is completely out of people's mind. This is the accuracy of biblical prophecy. This is the foreknowledge of God, absolutely. And not only that, but it's that these two parts are not only two parts, but they're made out of silver. This is absolutely fascinating. One of the things that the word silver fundamentally means, not only the material, but currency. One of the big things of Medo-Persia was their ability to do trade and commerce. It was astounding. They revolutionized that. In fact, their entire infrastructure was based, and politics was based upon facilitating economic development and trade. And then on top of that, they're a nation known. And you you just can't make this stuff up. It's just so amazing to think about. They are the nation known for the manufacture of silver currency, the highest producing silver nation in ancient history. And God said, yep, let's just call them silver. He knew. He knew. Before they even knew what they would be. That's the accuracy of biblical prophecy. That's the accuracy of biblical prophecy and its precision. And I stress it again. It is not being written after the fact. This is a prediction of a country that doesn't really exist yet. What they will even do and be, God already knew. God already knew way in advance. And yet, here's the point theologically with this nation. After you, Nebuchadnezzar, they will arise better than you, another kingdom, even though they're what? Inferior to you. The word inferior means earthward because the statue, we're moving down the statue toward the ground. True. And there are elements of Medo-Persia that you could say, yeah, they might have been better than Babylon. Obviously, they had to beat them, so they might have had stronger might and such. But silver is not as valuable as gold. We know that. Silver is not as pretty as gold. We understand that. And in the same way, Medo-Persia just didn't have the same glory, just didn't have the same splendor, just didn't have the same unity, just didn't have the same a lot of things as Babylon. Nevertheless, guess what? The inferior still beats you out. And what's the lesson? Your power never lasts forever. And God can use anyone to humble you. Sometimes we think, oh, I just got beaten by the better person. That's not always true. Look at sports the upsets and no one gets on and says well you know this team was owing 100 and they beat you and you were 100 and now one right <laughs> how'd that happen oh they were just better really they weren't better that's why it's humiliating and that's god's point here medo persia exists for one reason to humiliate babylon and god raised them up to show you don't have as much power as you think how do you know that i can end you whenever i want and with whoever I want. It doesn't matter. And it's a great lesson about nations. Sometimes we see evil come to power, and we get upset, or we get intimidated. What we must know, God has a plan. This is his plan. What's the plan? No nation. No human nation lasts forever. No human nation outlasts. This is just for a season. This is just for a time, and God will end it. And he can use anything and anyone to end it. And on a personal level, we understand that that truth is true as well. Sometimes we think we're a self-made person. Sometimes we think we are too big to fall. And the answer is, God can make you fall at any time. And he can use anyone to do it. So we need to remain humble before him. 
God has a plan. First nation is Babylon. Lesson to be learned. God controls the height of power. Then he sets up Medo-Persia, second nation. Lesson to be learned. He can limit your power. And then it says this, there will be a third nation, a third kingdom. Look at verse 39. Then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule with power over all the earth. That third kingdom of bronze, again, it is so clear. This is another nation characterized by bronze, and it will rule over all the earth. This is again where God's prophecies are so precise and so congruent and so coordinated. One of the things in this nation is Greece. One of the characteristics of the nation of Greece was its military. And one of the reasons why its military was so successful was because they used bronze. They had bronze helmets and bronze shields and bronze swords. This is the nation of what? Bronze. And if you thought, well, Medo-Persia wasn't really known at this time, Greece is on nobody's recollection right now. Greece is a nothing at this time. They don't arise for hundreds of years at this point. This is so far gone. And you can not only predict the nation, you can predict the material they're going to use. That's astounding. And then on top of that, it says this. This is the one distinguishing factor of the third kingdom that Daniel mentions in Eschatology 101. They rule with power over what? All the earth. Do you want to know Alexander's title? King of kings, great king, Lord of all the earth. Same phrase. Same phrase. God knew the material that Greece would use. God knew the very language that a ruler of Greece would use to describe himself, and he puts it all right there. It's amazing. He knew. This is, if you are wondering sometimes, how do we really know that this word is from God? Look at prophecy like that. How else are you going to explain that? You can't even predict the president, the next president in the next election, on the day of the election. <laughs> How about we make a bet on what the guy's name is going to be in his economic policy two to three hundred years in advance? God can say, I can do that. In fact, not just I can do that, I did. I did. Amazing. And here is the theology of Greece. Why did God raise them up? Demonstrate at least this one thing, which will rule with power. Did you catch that phrase, rule with power? Do you notice just a verse above? What did God, what did God say about Nebuchadnezzar? He, that is God, has given them into your hand and has made you rule with power. And then again, Greece will what? Rule with power. Why? Because God made them so. All ruling with power comes from God. And this time, God is the one who allows them to rule with power, not just over their own land, not just over an empire, but notice what verse 39 says, over all the what? The earth. Here is the sovereignty of God, that he owns the world, and it is his to give, and his to take away, and his to control. That's the breath of the sovereignty of God. We've had the height of it. You can see it in Nebuchadnezzar's life, and God is still higher. And in the, in the nation of Greece, they conquered, and they, they went through nation after nation, spanning the entire planet from India all the way to the other side. And we are astounded by that. But here's what you have to remember. 
That's God's planet. Those are God's countries. And he controlled them, and he can give them up because he owns them all. God owns the height of authority. God owns the breadth of authority. And God can limit all authority, which means what? God owns everything. God owns everything. And that leads us to the fourth kingdom. We have three kingdoms so far. We have one kingdom of Babylon, two kingdom of Medo-Persia, third kingdom of Greece, and the fourth kingdom, as we will see, will be Rome. Verse 40, then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron. What is Rome known for? What was their actual main innovation that even allowed them to come and overcome Greece? They didn't use bronze. They used iron. They used iron. Iron at this time was so rare and so difficult to procure and manufacture, people didn't even really think about it. And yet Daniel's talking about it as if it's commonplace. This is astounding information. In fact, Rome even had, if you remember, the Iron Legion. That's how well they were known for using iron. This is absolutely impeccable. This is absolutely precise and accurate and exacting. And Rome is impressive. It's Iron crushes and shatters everything. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these into pieces. What happens is Rome can exert more power than anybody and more military might than anybody, and it just shatters and breaks every single thing together. That's actually how they got the Pax Romana. It's kind of like how families work. You know, when kids are arguing at home and mom says, I'm going to tell dad, and then everyone just falls quiet. The words, I'm going to tell dad, are not magical words that cause revival and reformation in children's hearts. And all of a sudden, now they repent and they just want to get along to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not that at all. All it is, is there's going to be a guy who comes home with a bigger stick. And so you better get along. And that's Rome. Rome just comes in and breaks everybody to pieces. But they can't truly meld them together. This is important. They can't truly meld them together. They're just broken into pieces, and because they don't have the ability to resist, and because Rome can put them together any which way it desires, that's how you get the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, this time of peace and unity. It's not real unity. It's just holding diversity together. That's all that they're doing, but they did it, and they ruled much longer than anybody else, 500 years. And notice, do you see how the phrase says it says iron crushes and shatters things? Well, guess what? They're That's what the Messiah will do ultimately. He will crush the statue. And so Rome is trying to attempt to be the Messiah. Rome is trying to attempt to be the messianic kingdom, to be heaven on earth, to have that kind of power. They've launched that challenge. And speaking of launching that kind of challenge, look at verse 41. Now, in that you saw the feet and toes. Stop there. Do you see how the phrase now, that word now, is in the text, that's important. You say, why? Because before, when Daniel was describing the statue, he just described, you know, head, shoulders, feet, and toes. He just described the iron and the iron feet and the clay feet all in one. He didn't parse it out. He didn't differentiate it. He didn't distinguish it. And, but here he does. He separates it out. Why? Because there was an ancient kingdom of Rome, but there will be an eschatological kingdom of Rome, separated out, distinguished. Distinguished because it deals with feet and toes. Pop quiz. How many toes do people normally have? Ten. You think, why are you asking this? Because the Bible mentioned it. And turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. 
Daniel chapter 7. You see, this is just all teaching you things for the future. This is eschatology 101. Daniel 7 is kind of like eschatology 701. And here we are in Daniel 7, 7. And notice it talks about this fourth beast. Hey, we just talked about the fourth kingdom, the fourth metal correspondence. And he's a crazy, crazy monster. And it had large iron teeth. Have you heard of something that had iron earlier? Yes. That was the fourth kingdom. Yes. And it crushed and devoured and trampled with its feet. And it was different from all the other feasts that were before it. And it had how many horns? Ten. Just like the statue had how many toes? Ten. Everything is building. Everything is setting up. Everything is coordinating. And so this is an eschatological kingdom. And it's mixed up. It's got potter's clay and also partly of iron. It's so big that it encompasses more material than just one material, but yet it's divided. It's a nation of contradiction, unlike Rome, which tried to put everything together a little bit neatly, even if it was still maintaining diversity and unity. But it will have power. It will have the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. But this nation, this eschatological nation, though so big, the culmination of a rebellion against God, an eschatological foe against the Lord Jesus Christ, it will still have vulnerabilities. It won't just be a peculiar nation in that it's distinct from the ancient nation of Rome, ancient empire of Rome. It'll have this other peculiarity that it will have a physical weakness. Verse 42, the feet were iron and partly of clay as some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will also be what? Brittle. It's, it's not as powerful as you think it is because it's got not just strong iron, but weak what? Clay. We understand that. So it's got physical vulnerability, ripe for the Messiah to just strike it down. And not just physical vulnerability, but political vulnerability. Verse 43, notice what it says. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, and they will not cling to one another, even as iron does not combine with clay. This is, you can't put iron and clay together. They don't work. And that was what they try to do, what they will do in the future in this eschatological kingdom, this revived Roman Empire. They're going to try to intermarry. you got ten toes, which represent ten kings, like ten horns, ten men of might. And they're trying to intermarry their families together. But just like iron and clay don't cling together, these people don't cling together. And so you have physical vulnerability and you have political vulnerability and you say, why does the text emphasize this if they're supposed to be so triumphant? It's this, why they went out and they try to conquer so much and do so much and unite so much. And what happens when we say, when we talk about people, when they do too much, we say, oh, they just spread them out too what? Too thin, too thin. And then all these things started to fall apart. That's what's going on here. The Antichrist tries to do too much. And he spread them out too thin. You want to know why? Because he didn't have much to spread out. He's not the great leader that he thought he was. He might be the pinnacle of the might of man, true. But he can even spread himself out too thin. Why? Because no man has the power to control all of creation. No one does. And you try, and you won't be just iron. You'll just be iron and what? Clay. You won't be as strong as you think you are. And that's why, that's the plan of God for the nations. That's the plan of God for the nations. There are four nations, four nations, count them, four. One is Babylon, two is Medo-Persia, three is Greece, fourth is Rome with a revived Roman empire that's distinguished from it at the end. And 
Don't miss this. Don't miss this. And I probably should just stop here. Dr. Hall says right. So the, uh, <laughs> but let me just say three things to end it for you. One is this. One is this. It's interpretive. Did you catch? What you have is God. How does he reign? And what is his plan for kingdoms? You have a physical kingdom, real time, real place, real nation, physical kingdom. That's Babylon, isn't it? How about, how about Medo-Persia? Was that a real nation at a real time, at a real place, a real kingdom? Physical. Was that not so? Yes. How about, how about uh, Greece? Was that a real nation, real time, real place, real space? Yes. How about Rome? Was that a real nation, real time, real space, everything? Yes. So what do you think the eschatological Rome will be? A real kingdom at a real time in a real space, everything. Why? Because that's how the prophecy works. It's absolutely precise. Everything is deliberate. Everything is exacting. Everything corresponds. Now you know how to read prophecy. That's the way. This is eschatology 101. Daniel is saying, let me help you to understand this. It's that simple. That's how you read things. This is how you interpret things. And don't forget this. It's amazing that this, these nations, they're real nations. And this is God's real plan. When we talk about our lives, we're not just talking about truth that's abstract and out there, hypothetical, in the ivory tower, things that are virtual but really have no bearing on us. This is history. This is the world we're in. This is our lives. This is our existence. That's what we have to remember. And that means then that the theology that we have here is that real. How do we know that our God rules over tyrants because he ruled over Nebuchadnezzar. How do we know that our God can and will bring anybody down because he did so through Medo-Persia? How do we know that our God controls the ends of the earth because that's what he showed with Greece? And how do we know that our God will never let anyone who defies the Messiah to win because he brought down Rome years and years ago, even though they reigned for 500 years as iron, and he will bring them down ultimately in their ultimate demonstration, and we know that will be real as well. We know that that is true. Truer than anything you see on your computer or phone, truer than anything you have in the virtual world. This is the absolute truth. This is what we are in, and that is the nature of our hope. It is that real, that real, and that's what we must ingrain in our head every single moment. You don't look at your trials and say, well, that seems so formidable. That seems so real. I'll believe that. No, you believe what the word of God says because that's the facts on the ground and that's what we have to deal with. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, thank you for this book. Thank you for this dream which outlines the mystery of your plan. Step by step by step, we know where history is going and we know where the God of history is going and who the God of history is and what he is up to and what he implements in every generation because he never changes. And so we give you all the glory for that. And we, we ask that you would help us to wrestle with and make sure in our own hearts that these truths about your nature and your purpose and your plan be real in our lives not just an idea that we can jettison, but as we look at things and as we see things and as we watch the news and as we assess the circumstances of our lives, that we say, this is what is true. This is what is real. And therefore, we must live appropriately. Help us, O oh God, to do that to the honor of your name in which we pray. Amen.